Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 372, Book Panel Identity Crisis, Part 1. In this series of Trinity's podcast episodes, you're going to hear the audio from an interesting book session from the November 2023 meeting of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. This session was supposed to feature the four authors of a forthcoming book entitled One God, Three Persons, Four Views. The authors, in order of appearance in the book, are Dr. William Hasker, Dr. William Lane Craig, Dr. Bo Branson, and yours truly. Sadly, Dr. Hasker was not able to make the conference for health reasons, but book editor Dr. Chad McIntosh gave a short presentation and asked some questions on behalf of Dr. Hasker. The audio from this session has already been posted on YouTube, and as I'm working on this episode, it already has over 2,000 views. But you're going to get something extra in this and the next Trinity's podcast episodes. For one thing, there's some extra editing and a lot of relevant commentary by me. Second, there's actually going to be some relevant additional audio, one section from another podcast, and one from another session at this conference. And both of these relate to the dispute about the concept of numerical identity between Dr. William Lane Craig and me. Now, before you go any further, I would advise you to press pause and Google up the Unitarian Christian Alliance podcast and listen to episode number 77. You can find it wherever you get podcasts, or you can go to podcast.unitarianchristianalliance.org. There's an episode there, recently released, of course hosted by the inimitable Mark Kane, in which he interviews me and my friend Brandon Duke, who is also at the conference and at this session. There, you'll get more of the backstory about the book and how that came about, and about kind of what the conference is like, and how are my interactions with people there, and things like that. That will do more to set the stage for the gory details that you're going to hear in this podcast. So let's get right into it. The moderator of the session was evangelical apologist Tim Stratton from Free Thinking Ministries. He's the first voice you'll hear, and then Dr. Chad McIntosh, the book editor, will give the opening speech composed by Dr. William Hasker. And I'll jump in from time to time to help you understand what's going on. Today's panel discussion is a precy and extension of the exchange between our panelists in a forthcoming book titled One God, Three Persons, Four Views, a biblical, theological, and philosophical dialogue on the doctrine of the Trinity. Our distinguished panelists are Bo Branson, William Lane Craig, Dale Tuggy, and William Hasker. Unfortunately, Dr. Hasker had to withdraw from this conference on short notice due to health concerns. Filling in for Dr. Hasker is Dr. Chad McIntosh, who received his PhD from Cornell University and is editor of One God, Three Persons, Four Views. But we are hoping for the emergent Hasker to show up. <laughs> okay, just to explain that lame little joke, William Hasker years ago authored a book entitled Emergent Dualism, and this defends the thesis that basically human souls naturally arise in the course of the development of the physical body, uh, so then therefore souls don't have to be miraculously created by God for each human person. So that's called Emergent Dualism. They're making the joke that somehow Hasker's going to emerge. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Anyway, let's keep going. The format is as follows. Each panelist has a 10-minute opening statement, and following that will be a period of cross-examination. Each panelist will have the opportunity to directly ask another a question. This will last approximately 20 to 30 minutes, and then we'll go to Q&A. So without further ado, Please welcome Dr. McIntosh, presenting on behalf of Dr. Hasker. Well, we were all very sorry to, uh, to get the note from Dr. Hasker about his having to withdraw. But I think I was the sorriest because he asked me to stand in for him. <laughs> he will be here in spirit. 
<laughs> okay, the reason they're laughing now is that Dr. McIntosh has just taped a photo of Dr. Hasker's face to the top of the podium. Emerging Hasker. But I was lucky enough to get his prepared remarks, so uh, this is what Hasker intended to say. The doctrine of the Trinity consists of a small number of assertions that are held in common by Orthodox Christians. At this point, my head kind of internally snapped around. Small number. In the book, I count 37 claims that compose Dr. Hasker's doctrine of the Trinity. But I guess here he's describing like the minimal bare bones, what should count as a Trinity theory, as opposed to the one that he supposes is true. Together with a cluster of questions about which there is considerable disagreement. In these few minutes, I propose to address one of those disagreements over the question, what is a Trinitarian person? Now here I have to jump in for the general listener. It's a common theme in recent systematic theology, this idea that person, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, doesn't mean the quote modern concept of a person, but it's maybe something more like a mode of being or a way of existing or something like that. And who you might wonder has said such off the wall things? Well, the two most famous Trinitarian theologians of the 20th century. That would be the Catholic Dr. Karl Rahner and the Protestant Dr. Karl Barth, spelled Barth. Hasker's going to argue that that's not going to fly, especially for the Father and the Son. They have to be real selves because of their interpersonal relationship. This is not a topic that's really discussed in the book. It's a point of interest to some who are interested in present-day Trinitarian systematic theology. All Trinitarians agree that there's exactly one God, and that somehow in that one God, there are three entities that are termed persons. Often, however, the claim about the persons is considered somehow problematic. It's pointed out that the developed psychological conception of a person that we nowadays take for granted did not exist in the ancient world, and that we risk seriously distorting the patristic doctrine if we translate the ancient terms hypostasis and persona with our modern term person. It is sometimes suggested that we had just better give up the use of the term person in this connection, though it has not been easy to find a replacement for it that would command wide support. In this brief paper, I'll be making the case that all this confusion over the term person is misplaced and that this should not be a place where there is disagreement among Trinitarians. First, let me state clearly the definition of person I'll be working with. It is as follows. A person is a center of consciousness that is capable of mental acts of cognition, affection, and volition, and that is capable of relationships with other persons. Honestly, I've never liked this contemporary term, center of consciousness. I think it's clear to just say conscious thing or subject of conscious states or something like that. Anyway, yes, I think this is our common concept of a self that he's describing here. I submit that there's nothing distinctively modern about this definition. Anyone who would claim that the ancient authors, such as Homer, did not know that there are people who know things, have emotions or feelings, and perform actions, simply cannot be taken seriously. The definition says nothing, positively or negatively, about any physical embodiment, which is as it should be when we are thinking about the Trinity. So we have a concept of a person that is not disqualified from being used in the setting of the ancient world. But is this concept appropriate and acceptable to be used as a translation for the Trinitarian terms hypostasis and persona? I think so. Consider the following argument. One, the beliefs and worship practices of the early Christian communities, as depicted in the writings of the New Testament, constitute a valid and acceptable form of monotheism. This, I hope, we can all agree on. I'm not aware of anyone who is really familiar with the New Testament who thinks that it is really a polytheistic tract. So, two, the early Christians perceived God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit as distinct persons, as distinct centers of knowledge, will, love, and action. Of course, I don't agree about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is vividly personified in a couple of passages in John, but when the Holy Spirit actually shows up in Acts 2, 
No one there acts like they have met a new divine person. Rather, it just seems to be the power of God sort of falling on them or filling them. You know the normal metaphors for this sort of thing. And I do discuss the Holy Spirit briefly in my opening chapter in this book, by the way, and why the portrayal of the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to help Trinitarians. This is most evident, of course, in Jesus' relationship with the Father. Who can doubt that this relationship, as it is portrayed in all four Gospels, is a personal relationship, the sort of relationship that could only exist between persons, as we are understanding the term. Jesus prays to the Father, even explicitly distinguishing his will from the Father's when he pleads for the cup to pass, and yet submits to the Father's will regardless. I don't see how we can get around the implication that there are distinct centers of consciousness here. Are we to imagine, for example, that when Jesus asks the Father, why have you forsaken me, that he is speaking to himself and not to another person? All unimpeachable points about the New Testament, I would say. And the more limited evidence we have concerning the Holy Spirit also points in the direction of actions and attitudes that only make sense if attributed to a person. The Spirit sighs deeply as he intercedes for believers. And this surely represents the spirit as a person with desires and emotions. Which is how personification works. The spirit can be lied to or outraged, and both are sorts of actions that can only be meaningfully directed at persons. Especially telling is John 15, 16 through 17, when Jesus says, I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. Another advocate, replacing Jesus himself, must surely be another person. It would make little sense to say this of an impersonal force. And the Greek here is very telling. Jesus says, alas parakletos, another advocate of the same kind, as opposed to heteros parakletos, another advocate of a different kind, as if to emphasize that this other advocate is equal in status and excellence to Jesus himself, so that the coming of this advocate is adequate compensation, and indeed more than adequate, for the loss of Jesus' own bodily presence with his disciples. I think the points that Dr. Hasker just made really amount to special pleading. The Greek word alas, another, really doesn't require what he says it requires. Permit me to consider a parallel from a very different religious context. The longest sutta, or discourse, in the Pali Canon scriptures, which are the scriptures of Theravada Buddhism, is called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and it includes the death scene of the Buddha, the man Gautama. A couple pages before he dies, we read this. Then the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda, that's one of his disciples. Perhaps you will think that there is no longer a teacher to give instruction, that you have no teacher. But you should not look at it in this way, Ananda. The teaching and discipline that I have taught you and explained to you, that is your teacher after I have gone. Now, if you read that and say, the Buddha is saying that he's no longer going to be your teacher, but from now on, your teacher is going to be basically his teaching. Therefore, the Buddha's teaching has to be a person like the Buddha, because only a person can be a literal teacher. And he says they're not going to be without a teacher, so come on. This is just taking metaphorical speech literally. It's just wrong. That's not how the Buddhist reader takes it. That's not how any reader takes it. They understand the figure of speech. I don't see how it's different with that passage that Dr. Hasker was discussing from the Gospel according to John. Three, the early Christians exhibit a pattern of Benetarian belief and worship in which Jesus is honored, praised, and worshiped along with God the Father. One of my favorite examples of such Benetarian worship can be found in the book of Revelation. The author is intent on discouraging his readers from any compromise with idolatry in the form of the emperor cult. He pleads with them to be faithful unto death if need be, and he condemns the worship of false and invalid objects of devotion. And the exalted angels who are instructing the seer specifically forbid his offering worship to them. Yet in chapter 5, 11 through 13, we find the heavenly host worshiping the lamb along with God. 
It says, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The worship directed to the lamb can hardly be viewed as a different, inferior kind of worship compared with the worship offered to the one on the throne and undoubtedly provides the template for the worship that was to be offered and was in fact offered in the churches for whom the book of Revelation was written. Dr. Hasker here has left out some crucial details in the passage, and I give a brief answer in my opening speech later in this episode. For a longer answer, you can check out my podcast episode entitled, Who Should Christians Worship? What strikes me as remarkable is that this material, appealed to in support of 2 and 3, very quickly and directly gets us to the central affirmation of social Trinitarianism, and does so relying on evidence that is either exegetically very straightforward or on principles that should be axiomatic for reflective Christians. Moving on, we have four. No non-divine person can properly be the recipient of divine worship. I take it that there is such a thing as divine worship, that is, worship owed to God alone, such that giving it to any lesser figure would be improper, to say the least. Notice that Dr. Hasker has just run together two different claims. One is that you should only worship God. That is a scriptural claim, and we'll get into what it means later in this session briefly. Another claim is you should only worship a divine person. Well, that claim is not in scripture, nor is it self-evident, nor do I see any other way to justify it. It follows, therefore, five. There is a valid and acceptable version of monotheism in which there is more than one divine person. And combining five with two through four, we get six. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity must acknowledge the Father and the Son and Spirit as persons in the sense defined. I believe all Christians should be committed to one through six, and therefore should accept that the Trinitarian persons are indeed persons in the sense that has been given. That's not to deny that there is a good deal more to be worked out. After all, it took several centuries for the church to arrive at a more developed formulation. But the basic doctrine of three divine persons should not be in dispute. Well, I'm not sure why not. In fact, we know this was in dispute. Specifically, the literal personhood of the Holy Spirit was in dispute between roughly the years 150 and 380. Scripture is just less clear about the status of the Holy Spirit than it is about who the Father is and who the Son is. I've chosen this as my focus because it seems to be at the heart of my disagreement with Dr. Branson and Dr. Tuggy. Dr. Branson, because of an apparent indifference about whether Jesus and the Spirit are persons in the same sense as the Father, and Tuggy because of his denial of the divinity of Jesus and the personhood of the Spirit. Thank you. So that very brief speech by Dr. William Hasker, I think, illustrates that he's what I call a three-self Trinitarian. Others usually call it a social Trinitarian. You may ask, what about the Trinity, which is supposed to be the one God? In his view, the Trinity, that is God, is not literally a person or a self, but rather this group of three, they do form a thing, and that thing is sort of person-like in various ways. So it can be talked about as if it were a person and interacted with as if it were a person, but the Trinity is only ever going to be an as-if person, a person resembling thing. For him, it's not going to be a person. That, I think, should give you pause. All Christians run around constantly referring to God as if God were a person. They use personal pronouns. They talk about his will for your life, his love for you. On the face of it, all of this presupposes that God is a person. He's a perfect person. He's the greatest person there could be. Anyway, because of his Trinity theory, Dr. Hasker disagrees with that. Chad McIntosh, who holds a broadly similar theory, does hold God to be a person, but a very surprising kind of person. And if you want to know what Dr. McIntosh thinks, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can see my summary in the Stanford Encyclopedia article of his, I call it, a for-self trinity theory. 
When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bo Branson's 10-minute opening. I've actually rearranged the speeches here. I think it makes more sense for the podcast listener to hear from Branson next, because the two speeches by Craig and myself kind of go together. So here then is Dr. Bo Branson. His task is to say what's distinctive about his so-called monarchical Trinitarianism. Well, I'm sorry Bill Hasker couldn't be here. You could really tell all throughout the book he was making full use of all three of his cognitive faculties in his defense of social Trinitarianism. So, um, My approach in this essay was to uh, talk about Gregory of Nyssa's uh, triadology. I talked about the other Cappadocians and John of Damascus. Not so much because I think that uh, it's necessary to, to go with uh, everything Gregory of Nyssa says, but I think it's unquestionable that his view of Trinitarianism is a version of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is something that uh, people sometimes question. So I argue that a model of the Trinity should both be able to defeat objections and also fit organically with some of the original motivations behind the development of Trinitarianism. Uh, For the objections, an obvious one is the three gods problem, so you shouldn't uh, have more than one god. Uh, I note that that generalizes, though, uh, so there are other things that the Bible says there are one of, like saviors and creators, where the Father is called a savior, the Son is called a savior. I just call that the three F's problem. That's something that even affects Unitarians, so everyone needs a a solution to that. Uh, Dale argues that uh, in the New Testament, typically, the New Testament identifies God with the Father. That word typically there is very telling. When I say the New Testament identifies God with the Father, I mean the assumption or the assertion that the one God and the one Jesus calls Father are one and the same. When Dr. Branson says typically, he's talking about a word usage. What he's saying is that the terms God and Father are typically used in a co-referring manner. I agree with that, but I do note in the book that sometimes Dr. Branson slides back and forth between substantial or metaphysical issues and linguistic issues without seemingly differentiating properly between them. Uh, I call this the who is God problem. Uh, And so I say at a minimum, you ought to be able to formulate your view in in such a way that God just, uh, the identity claim is that God equals the father. Okay, so here he's not talking about words. Ostensibly, it looks like he's talking about the numerical sameness of God and the father according to these authors. Now, this may go past you really quickly, and you may not understand the significance of that. If that's right that the New Testament authors think the one God just is the Father, that means they don't think the one God just is the Trinity, because no sensible person would think that the Father just is the Trinity. They differ, so they can't be one and the same thing. Never mind, they didn't have that concept, but even if they did, they couldn't identify those two things, the triune God and the Father. Okay, so if he and I are right, that the one God just is the Father, then the triune God theories are inconsistent with what's taught in the New Testament. This is a point that I emphasize, and it's not a point that he emphasizes. Uh, And then I talk about the Theophanies problem, which is one of the uh, uh, motivations, not the only one, but one uh, behind uh, the development of Trinitarianism or part of the background to it. In Second Temple Judaism, there was a lot of worry about the fact that the Bible says no one can see God, uh, but then it says tons of people see God. And one way of resolving that was to talk about two powers theology, to talk about uh, a visible Yahweh and an invisible Yahweh, uh, two figures of some sort. I just call that visible figure, the theophany figure. So those are the things that I think uh, I I want to try to to solve or, or address. As Dr. Craig points out later in the session, Dr. Branson is kind of playing a different game than the rest of us. For Hasker, Craig, and I, our fundamental concern is what does the Bible teach Christians to believe about God? Branson is a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, 
He's less concerned with the Bible than he is with creedal orthodoxy. And he just kind of gives his criteria, his desiderata for what he thinks Trinity theories should address, what work they should be doing. And then he argues that Gregory of Nyssa, the church father who's active in the latter half of the 300s, uh, he argues that that theory does well with those problems and is unimpeachably orthodox. So yeah, again, he's kind of doing his own thing. That comes out very much in the book. Uh, I point out some linguistic distinctions uh, that need to be kept in mind. Sometimes we use the word God as a singular referring term, so we refer to something. Sometimes we use it as a predicate, ascribing some kind of property to something. That predicative use of God also is ambiguous. So sometimes uh, when we say there's only one God, especially in early Christian writings, they mean to talk about what they call the monarchia, that there's one archi anarchos, one source without source. Right. And in that sense, Dr. Branson thinks that the Father is, quote, God, since he just is the one true God. But now he quickly moves on to another usage of the word God. Uh, sometimes we use the word God to just mean a thing that has the divine nature. Now, it seems to me that in Dr. Branson's view, there are three of those. But then, isn't a thing with a divine nature a God? If not, why not? And if a thing with a divine nature is a god, and we've got three numerically distinct things, each of which has divine nature, why wouldn't that be three gods? In a way, he gives an answer to this in the book, but you may not like it. And then Gregory Nyssa talks about using the word god to mean a thing that performs a certain token activity of a type that is characteristically divine in some sense. Again, really controversial things go by really fast in this presentation. The notion that God is an activity word that signifies something because of a characteristic activity, like the term shoemaker or tailor, that for some reason wasn't controversial to Gregory of Nyssa, but I would say it's super controversial now. and It's not something most Trinitarians would agree with about the word God, I think. So uh, as far as the theology that I talk about in Gregory of Nyssa and the Cappadocians, uh, I talk about the monarchy of the Father, uh, monarchical Trinitarianism is what I call the view that the Father is the archianarchos, so this is uh, the view that the Son is eternally begotten and the Spirit eternally proceeds. And so there's a use of the word God as a singular term that just refers specifically to the Father because he's the archianarchos. Right. In other words, there's a sense of the Greek word theos in which it can only be applied to the Father. Right. That's because they thought the Father and the one true God are one and the same. Dr. Branson calls this view, which also posits the divinity of the Son and Spirit, monarchical Trinitarianism. I call it subordinationist Unitarianism. That looks like it's going to inadvertently entail tritheism as well. But again, you'll have to see his contributions to the book for why, in his view, that doesn't follow. So with the three different disambiguations of the predicative use of the word God, that really splits the three gods problem up into three different questions. One is, is there just one ultimate source? And the monarchy of the Father solves that because it says, yes, it's the Father is, uh, is the only uh, archianarchos. Uh, St. Basil famously said, when accused of tritheism, he said, there's only one God because there's only one Father. So he was using the word God in this sense. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa says he thinks that the scripture doesn't really endorse the claim that there's only one thing with the divine nature. He thinks that the Bible doesn't really, doesn't really get into metaphysics, so uh, it just doesn't really address that. Whether it's true or not, that's not the intent behind statements that there's only one God in the Bible. And then finally, he says, uh, the Bible has tons of things that have this, uh, this activity uh, that are gods in that sense. So uh, let the gods who have not created the heavens and the earth perish. Uh, the gods of the Gentiles are demons. I've said to your gods, all of you sons of the Most High. There's uh, tons of that. And that obviously, there can't be multiple gods in the sense of uh, multiple source without source beings. And obviously, the demons don't have the divine nature. So he thinks the Bible just doesn't really endorse that. Uh, and so that pretty much solves everything. Right. In other words, the problems that he set out to solve at the start of his book chapter. Uh, I also go on, though, to address an objection, which is why would Gregory Nyssa go on and, and spend a lot of time talking about the three gods problem in the sense of 
three things but by nature or they engage in this activity of some sort uh, if he thinks it's already kind of solved. And the answer is pretty clearly, he's very explicit about this, that he just wants a kind of defeater-defeater for the Arians. Uh, the Arians insisted that the word God predicates the divine nature, uh, and so he wanted a, a response to them kind of on their own terms. As far as whether there are three beings that engage in whatever kind of uh, activity characterizes the divine nature, uh, he's worried that that introduces the problem of necessary agreement, which is a criticism a lot of people have made of social Trinitarianism. Could the persons of the Trinity disagree with each other? Uh, are they, could they kind of act against each other? Is that even conceptually possible? So uh, he wants to address both of those, and I, I spend a little bit of time uh, in my paper talking about uh, how people in antiquity thought about quantity or number. Uh, today we typically think that the number of Fs is the number of, uh, let's say, logical subjects that are Fish but not identical. Uh, in antiquity, people talked about division, uh, so Aristotle talks about this categories, chapter 6. Uh, people thought about it in different ways, but how the Fs or how Fness can be uh, divided into discrete, not just non-identical, but discrete, non-overlapping instances of ethnis. Uh, whether you get any difference uh, on those two views depends kind of on your view about uh, properties. So if you're a nominalist, uh, you're not really going to get any difference. You're going to divide the hypostases uh, up, and uh, those just are the divisions of ethnis because there's not really a property there. Uh, if you think of uh, property instances as being individuated by their bearers, then same thing. If you think of uh, property instances as being individuated spatiotemporally, and all the hypotheses that you're dealing with are also discrete and individuated spatiotemporally, you'll get the same result. But uh, if you think that you're dealing with uh, hypotheses that are individuated non-spatiotemporally, let's say by begetting and proceeding relations, uh, and they're spatiotemporally, they overlap, then their instances of properties wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be divided up. So there would just be one instance of the divine nature, for example. And so anyway, Gregory just says sort of, uh, given that, then on the Arian's own account, it wouldn't matter. You'd still have just uh, one God, even if you were counting by uh, things with the divine nature. And the Arians, of course, thought about counting in, in that way. <laughs> Okay, just to brutally paraphrase a lot of difficult stuff that just flew past your ears, if by God you mean something that has the divine nature, and you accept highly specific metaphysical claims about the divine nature which the three share, and you accept that counting should be by division, and you accept that the divine nature in these three persons which they share cannot be divided among them, then on all those assumptions you're supposed to count them as one and the same God, that is, one and the same thing with the divine nature, using this counting by, in a sense, divisibility. Are these Dr. Branson's views or Gregory of Nyssa's? Uh, not really sure where one starts and the other ends. There's more about this in the book, but let's let him keep going. More importantly, though, is the issue of inseparable operations. So Gregory would say... The hypostases are individuated by these begetting and preceding relations, but actions don't beget actions, and they don't proceed from actions. So their activities, their token actions ad extra, uh, are going to be undivided and identical. So whenever F is an agent noun, and it's uh, predicating a certain kind of activity, we would get just one F, whatever that might be. So Whatever activity the word God predicates in this sense of a being that engages in a certain kind of activity, uh, you're going to end up with just one of those. Right, so if the word God is supposed to be an action word that refers to a characteristic activity, just call it Godding, okay? Just turn God into a verb. Supposedly, if you look at what the Father, Son, and Spirit do with respect to creation, you can only discern one identical act of Godding at any moment or in eternity. And so because of that, you're only supposed to say God in the singular. Hmm, okay. Inseparable operations ad extra is one of those doctrines that to me is a real head-scratcher, and I don't see how anyone could reconcile that with what's in the New Testament. Dr. Hasker, I think, agrees with that, and there is a little bit of back and forth about this in the book between him and Dr. Branson. This also generalizes to the three Fs problem. So uh, there's only going to be one Savior, one Creator, 
Redeemer, whatever, uh, whatever you plug in there. Uh, and it also solves the problem of necessary agreements. So the hypostases will just have a single will. They'll have a single activity. So they're never going to sort of be uh, at odds with each other. So uh, with that said, uh, the bottom line there is uh, that Gregory of Nyssa's triadology is a version of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I think that it solves all of those problems. And so I conclude that some version of the doctrine of the Trinity solves all of those problems. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the opening speech from Dr. William Lane Craig. contribution to this volume is to show that the Bible teaches an elementary version of the doctrine of the Trinity, according to which, one, there is exactly one God, and two, there are exactly three persons who are properly called God. Now, as I point out in the book, what he just said is a shockingly minimalistic attempt to state a doctrine of the Trinity And it's one which most Trinitarians, I think, would not count as a doctrine of the Trinity. This comes up later in the session. And your first question should be, when you hear that definition, what does he mean by properly? So he addresses that. By the word properly, I mean something like in truth, where truth is intended to be literal truth. I mean to distinguish thereby the sense in which the Father, Son, and Spirit are called God, from the sense in which intermediate figures in Judaism, such as exalted patriarchs or principal angels, are only improperly called God. Christ, in particular, is not called God merely hyperbolically or figuratively, but in truth. He is called God in the same sense that the Father is called God. The probative burden of this claim is carried by a careful exegesis of specific New Testament passages and their contexts. I focused on passages in which Christ is explicitly referred to as theos, because the New Testament affirmation of the deity of Christ, while not sufficient for a full-blown Trinitarianism, is nonetheless a dagger in the heart of Unitarianism. And in particular, of Tuggy's Socinian brand of Unitarianism, which, violating, as it does, Jewish monolatry, is blasphemous and idolatrous, enjoining worship of a mere creature, a mere man. You have to enjoy the melodrama there. A dagger in the heart. Okay, Dr. Craig. Those quick accusations hurled, I do briefly address them in my opening, which will come next. Branson and Hasker's more complex views entail the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, even if they think that it is in need of elaboration. By contrast, Tuggy regards the stated doctrine of the Trinity as false. So does the New Testament teach the biblical doctrine of the Trinity? Taking my cue from Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God, I provide an updated exegesis of eight New Testament passages in which Jesus is referred to as Theos. I anticipated that Tuggy would devote the lion's share of his response to my essay to a serious, detailed, exegetical discussion of these key Christological passages. To my surprise, he had almost nothing to say in response to my exegesis of the eight passages. Right. And in the book, he kind of mocks me for this. But it's not because I was scared or something like that. It's because it's obvious 
that God isn't used in the highest sense or the divine person sense of Jesus in the New Testament. As I explain in the book, I can grant for the sake of argument that Jesus is called God in those eight passages that he burns so much of his word count arguing for. It doesn't matter. Being called God in truth in the New Testament writer's eyes doesn't imply being God or a divine person or being fully divine. So he's a little bit mad that I'm sort of not playing his proof text game. And here he's going to try to, you know, tighten the screws on the couple of passages that I did very briefly address in the book. Tucky deals with only two of the eight passages examined, namely Hebrews 1.8 and John 1.1. In discussing the first of these passages, Tucky points out that Hebrews 1.8 cites Psalm 45.7, which in the Hebrew may well have been addressed to the king. But since such hyperbolic use cannot be plausibly carried over to Hebrews 1.8, it does not apply there. Uh, the parallelism of the sons being addressed as both God and Lord, and the exalted descriptions of the son in his superiority to angelic beings make it clear that Christ is not addressed as God merely in the way that the Jewish king might be called Elohim. Which is an obvious red herring, a mere distraction. Of course, Jesus doesn't have to be called God in the same exact sense that this ancient king was called God. The Messiah is a much greater thing than being an ancient king of Israel. Of course, Jesus literally is a king, but nothing about my argument requires the meaning of God as applied to Jesus in Hebrews 1 to be the same as the meaning of God as applied to this ancient Israelite king in Psalm 45. Tucky protests that Christ is exalted only post-mortem to lordship. No, the author of Hebrews holds that Christ's lordship is possessed from the moment of creation. In the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth. 110. Now, I have to say that it's annoying that Craig is just going to gesture at and appeal to what is possibly the least clear passage in the New Testament. When you read the commentaries on this, they're all wondering what on earth the author is doing applying Psalm 102 to Jesus in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. And I have to say, this is a noticeable thing in the book. Craig will appeal to a difficult passage as if it weren't difficult and just hope that the reader doesn't know more about it. I find this to be not just annoying, but a little bit dishonest to the scholarship. When the experts disagree about the reading of a text, when the experts disagree about an interpretation of a text, when the experts disagree about the punctuation or translation of a text, it's really not good for you just to gesture at that text and be like, well, my evangelical homies agree with me that this is taken the way I take it. You're going to lose the trust of the discerning reader doing this. There's a very interesting recent book about the letter to the Hebrews by Christadelphian Philip Capusta. It's called Scripturae Contra Trinitatem, the Epistle to the Hebrews, an anthology of quotations, critical commentaries, and alternative expositions on common Trinitarian proof texts. He's got a whole chapter on these three verses, heavy with quotations from Trinitarian commenters, and he discusses at least four very different interpretive options for this passage. Is this saying that Jesus existed when the world was created? Some think that. Some think that about Hebrews 1-2 as well. I think both are mistaken, given the overall context of Hebrews and the whole New Testament, but I can't make the case here. Moreover, Tuggy ignores the themes in Hebrews of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ via the incarnation and resurrection, which relate to Christ's human nature. Wow. I have to say, this is just massive and obvious eisegesis here by Dr. Craig. Incarnation in Hebrews? Where? Partitive exegesis in Hebrews? Attributing some things about him to his human nature only? Really? That's an anachronism in the New Testament, and it's certainly not in Hebrews. So no, Tuggy is not ignoring obvious things about Hebrews in discussing these bits of Hebrews 1. 
Of the Johannine texts I cite, Tuggy interacts briefly with only John 1.1, claiming that John's Logos is a mere literary personification akin to Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8. The fatal flaw with this idiosyncratic interpretation of John's Logos is that a literary personification cannot become flesh and live among us as a real person. If persons are essentially persons, then Jesus could not possibly have once been a literary personification. But Jesus did not merely replace a literary personification at his birth. Rather, the supposed literary personification became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John 1.14 This bit is unnecessarily polemical and surprisingly uninformed. Many scholars think that wisdom Christology is in play here, and everything Craig says here is already anticipated and thoroughly refuted in my lecture, What John 1 Meant, which Craig knew about, but evidently decided not to view. Is it impossible for a personification to turn into a literal person? Of course it is. But briefly, there's a broad swath of scholarship that supports viewing this as not a literal incarnation, not a transformation in a person, or the turning of a personification into a person, neither of those. There are precedents in earlier Jewish literature for what I'm calling a non-literal incarnation, such as God's Torah coming down and dwelling among the people as the Torah, the books of the law. Now, that's neither a person before nor after, but they could also talk about the Torah coming down and living through the man Moses. That doesn't imply that Moses used to be the Torah or the contents of the Torah in God's mind or something. Suppose a guy meets the woman of his dreams, and you say this woman is the embodiment of everything he ever hoped for in a woman. All right, good for him. Does that mean that this woman used to be this man's dreams or hopes? No, of course not. But we understand what's being said. So we can understand what's being said if God's eternal word or wisdom by which he created all things comes down to dwell or tabernacle among us in or as the man Jesus. So there's a massive gap here between Dr. Craig's confidence and the strength of his arguments. But buckle up because here comes even more over-the-top confidence, this time not in his biblical arguments, but rather in his, quote, model of the Trinity and what it's supposed to literally amount to. And pay attention to this bit, because we'll have an interesting exchange about this later. That's the extent of Tuggy's comments on my exegetical discussion of the eight New Testament passages that are the focus of my attention. He clearly has much more work to do if he's to turn back the force of my argument. So far as the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is concerned, the model component more or less takes care of itself. It seems to me that a disarmingly simple model of the biblical doctrine may be stated as follows. God is an immaterial, tripersonal being. That's it. No metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, no exotic stand-ins for the classical identity relation. God is an immaterial, tripersonal being, plain and simple. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity becomes logically problematic only if one interprets such statements as the Father is God and the Son is God as identity statements. What he just said there is demonstrably false. Of course, it is a terrible problem if you identify the Son with God and the Father with God because things identical to the same thing have to be identical to one another, so it would follow that the Son just is the Father, which all Trinitarians by definition reject. But suppose that we take Craig's option, and when a Trinitarian says the Son is God or the Father is God, they mean that each one is divine. Okay, there's a different problem there. Divinity is supposed to be everything that's necessary and sufficient for being a God. Now, these are two different things, and each one has everything that it takes to be a God. That looks like that implies that there are two gods. Now, of course, Craig has a way to get around that, which is to deny that either one of them is a god, 
going up against the New Testament and a lot of creeds because he wants to say the Trinity is the one God. But the New Testament authors did not even have a clear conception clear of conception. the modern did you catch logical that? relation of identity. Identity as a symmetric, reflexive, transitive, equivalence relation was virtually unknown in antiquity and would have been particularly foreign to the missionary pastors who wrote the New Testament. Moreover, Philip Bricker rightly warns that surface grammar often misrepresents the underlying logic. One must beware of inferring logical from grammatical form. The endemic ambiguity of ordinary language can make it very difficult to discern just when an author, especially one utterly unacquainted with the modern relation of identity, intends to make an identity statement. Utterly unacquainted with. Did you catch that shift? That means not having the concept at all. While biblical authors believed that the Son is God, they would have balked at the assertion that God is the Son, which suggests that we misinterpret them if we construe their initial belief as an identity statement. And that's not true when it comes to the term the Father and the term God. They would say God is the Father, and they would say that the Father is God. Hmm, I wonder why there's that difference there. Similarly, the same author who affirms that the Father is the only true God, John 17, 3, also affirms that Jesus Christ is the true God, 1 John 5, 20, which again suggests that we misconstrue these affirmations if we interpret them as statements of identity. There's a real failure of analysis here on the part of Dr. Craig. And in the book, he trots out a tired old but ridiculous apologetics talking point about John 17, 1 through 3, which is, well, he didn't say that only the Father is the only true God. <laughs> well, the author didn't have to say only the Father is the only true God. Just one only is enough. If the Father is the only true God, that's to say that anything that's true God is one and the same with the Father. So talking about the Father as the only true God presupposes a concept of being the same thing as, which is to say numerical sameness, whether or not you understand all the features of this relation as we do now. What Dr. Craig does instead, and again, this is the irritating habit I referred to before, he jumps away from John 17, and he appeals to a very contentious interpretation of 1 John 5.20, in which some scholars think the phrase true God is applied to Jesus. I think it's obviously not applied to Jesus there, and the scholar that Craig normally relies on, Dr. Murray Harris, also agrees that Jesus is not referred to as true God in 1 John 5.20. So Craig's going to appeal to a very dubious interpretation of another text in order to try to get around an obvious implication of this clear text, John 17, 1-3. That's not good and serious interpretation of the New Testament. Now, full disclosure, in the book, Dr. Craig does take a crack at showing that Murray Harris is wrong about 1 John 5.20. He argues that the terms true God have to be applied to Jesus there. I didn't find that at all convincing, but let the reader judge. If I were in this session to say that Dr. Craig is the only real apologist in this room, that would be false if there were another real apologist sitting five rows back, right? Just in the same way, if Jesus says the Father is the only true God, oh, and by the way, Jesus is also true God, then what Jesus said would be false because of the word only. This is just reading comprehension, but Dr. Craig can't have this text do what it does, which is assume the identity of the one God with the Father, because again, he denies that the one God is the Father, because he wants to say, as a Trinitarian, that the one God and the Trinity are one and the same. Or again, the fact that the New Testament authors affirm that the Father is God and that Jesus Christ is God does not lead them to infer that the Father is Jesus Christ in accordance with the transitivity of identity, showing once more 
that it is an anachronistic hermeneutical error to import the modern identity relation into these authors' statements. It is far more plausible that the logical form of such statements is predication. Just as the Father is divine, so the Son is divine. I think this is special pleading. What he just said assumes that the Father and Son are called God in the same sense. Practically no Christian wants the Father and Son to be one and the same, such that nothing could be true of one that's not true of the other, that is to say, numerically identical. So if the Father is called God and the Son is called God, Craig is arguing, oh, and it's obviously in the same sense. So that one sense must be predication, not identification. But of course, it's not at all obvious that they're called God in the same exact sense. The unwanted conclusion is blocked if these authors think that the Father and God are numerically identical, but they just think Jesus is God in some other sense that doesn't entail being the one God. The central nerve of Unitarianism lies in the attribution to the New Testament authors of a conception of the modern relation of identity, a relation that would have been foreign to them and could not have been intended by them in light of their explicit statements that Christ is God, but is not the Father. Sever that nerve and Unitarianism inevitably atrophies and dies. May it rest in peace. <laughs> That's what it sounds like when a horrible, wicked heresy dies, by the way. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, my opening speech. distinctive about my Unitarian Christian theology as opposed to the Trinitarian ones you've just heard? Well, first, there's a difference of dates. About the views of my three friends here, we have no evidence that anyone in the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection held such views. Truly, Trinitarian theologies date from the fourth century and later, in some cases, much later. In contrast, there's evidence that mainstream Christians whom scholars call dynamic monarchians did hold views like the ones I'm about to describe in the early 200s, late 100s, and arguably all the way back to the time of the apostles, as some of them claimed. On this, see the recently published monograph Dynamic Monarchianism, the earliest Christology. Second difference is about how my views relate to the New Testament. My views about God and his unique human son are explicitly taught in the New Testament, and so in contrast to what you've just heard, they can be stated in the words of the New Testament. Sometimes when people hear that I'm a Unitarian Christian, they ask me what I believe. My short answer is everything that's in the book of Acts, everything that's preached there. But let me spell it out a little bit more. The one called Yahweh in the Old Testament is in the New Testament called the Father or God or God the Father. As Paul says in Acts 24, he serves the God of his ancestors. The reader knows this is Yahweh, who is the God the Father Paul mentions at the start of his letters. In John 8, Jesus says, It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. He's talking to his fellow Jews. The God of the Jews is none other than the Father. In John 17, Jesus says the Father is the only true God. If he's right about that, it follows that the only true God is not the trinity of later Catholic traditions, a tripersonal God which goes unmentioned in the New Testament. I believe the miraculously conceived Jesus to be a man who told you the truth that he heard from God, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him. He's God's Messiah. That's the clear thesis statement of all four Gospels. And the Father, we're told, is his God as much as he's your God and my God, John 20, 17. This Jesus is explicitly a man, that is to say, a human person or a self, 
not an eternal divine person mysteriously united with a complete human nature. These views lie plain on the face of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. In my view, they're also expressed in somewhat different language in John and Paul too, and in the other New Testament books. But small c Catholic traditions have rendered these hard to understand by laying later concerns on top of them. Third, there's a difference of charity. My understanding of the New Testament treats these authors as having a theology and a Christology which are simple, intelligible, and unconfused. These views stand on their own two feet. No fancy metaphysics is required. These authors are not theological primitives who don't really understand what they're saying and who need help from the battling bishops of the fourth century. They show no signs about being confused about who God is or who Jesus is. The notion that they're somehow grasping after the Trinitarianism of the fourth century and beyond is purely imagined. In this book, I argue from 20 undeniable facts about the New Testament and early Christian history. These facts are surprising if these authors believe the one God is tripersonal, but these facts are either expected or not surprising or much less surprising if these authors believe the one God to be the Father with whom no one is equally divine. Thus, these facts confirm the hypothesis that New Testament authors are Unitarian over the hypothesis that they're Trinitarian. Note this procedure visibly doesn't beg the question, that is, merely assume that these authors are Unitarian in their theology. The first fact is that there is no New Testament Trinity passage. No text in which the view that the one God is the Trinity is clearly asserted, implied, or assumed. This is shocking if the authors are Trinitarians, but it's expected if they think the one God just is the Father alone. Thus, this undeniable fact supports the hypothesis that these authors think the one God is the Father over the hypothesis that they think the one God is the Trinity. The second fact is that no New Testament word or phrase was at that time understood to refer to a tripersonal God. They didn't yet have the words we translate as Trinity, but of course a Trinitarian needn't call her triune God the Trinity. She may just coin a new use of the word God so that the word God refers to the Trinity, as we see in Augustine. But we would be shocked if Trinitarian authors had no word or phrase by which to refer to the Trinity. As best we can tell, no New Testament authors had such a word or phrase, no, not even the word theos. But this is expected for them if the one God is, as they say, the Father. Thus, this second fact strongly supports the hypothesis that these authors are Unitarian over the hypothesis that they're Trinitarian. The third fact, and this is different than what's on the handout, is that the New Testament explicitly says that the Father is Jesus' God. This implies that the Father is a God, of course, the only God, and so then the only God can't be the Trinity. The monotheistic God is necessarily top level. Either he exists alone, or he freely creates other beings who are subject to him. Those are all the possibilities. That at least six New Testament authors say that the Father is Jesus' God is shocking if they're Trinitarians, as Trinitarians urge that Jesus is fully divine and or a God, both of which seem to rule out being under a God but this fact is expected if they're Unitarians. My next fact is the New Testament use of the word God, theos. We can generously concede for the sake of argument that as many as eight times in the New Testament, theos refers to Jesus, and perhaps twice it refers to God's spirit. But it's an undeniable fact that more than 99% of the uses of theos in these books refer to the Father, and according to the lexicons and the textual scholars, Theos in the New Testament never refers to the Trinity. This pattern of usage, almost always the Father, extremely rarely God's human Son or His Spirit, never the Trinity, is very surprising if these authors assume God to be the Trinity. But it's either unsurprising or far less surprising if these authors think the one God is the Father. So again, this fact confirms the second hypothesis over the first. The last fact I'll mention is the New Testament pattern of worship. As illustrated by Trinitarian liturgies, a Trinitarian worships God the Trinity and also each of the divine persons. But in the New Testament, the Trinity is never an object of worship. The Holy Spirit, never an object of worship. The main and ultimate object of worship is the Father whom we approach through Christ. And there's no attempt to spread the worship around equally between the three. Jesus, 
especially after his exaltation, is worshipped too, but the reason cited for his worship is not his divine nature, but rather his exaltation by God because of his perfect self-sacrificing service to God. Philippians 2.9, Revelation 5, compare it with Revelation 4. And this worship of Jesus is explicitly to the glory of God the Father. One would not expect God to be worshipped to the glory of someone above him. This pattern is shocking if these authors are Trinitarians. It's far less surprising if they think the one God just is the Father. Thus again, confirmation of the second hypothesis over the first. And by the way, these authors show no anxiety that worshiping a man in this way counts as idolatry, serving another God, or is somehow blasphemous. In sum, I'm a believer in restorationism, a more thoroughgoing Protestantism. Sometimes a minority report turns out to be correct. Do you believe in congregational church governments, the priesthood of all believers, believers' baptism? If so, you agree with me that sometimes God allows mainstream Christianity to stray from the truth, even for long periods of time. It's time to restore New Testament monotheism, putting confused and confusing Trinity speculations into the same category as the papacy and transubstantiation. Now, Perhaps a few of you here disagree. <laughs> Nonetheless, you should have some sympathy for fellow Protestants who agree with everything proclaimed in Acts. This disagreement should be looked at more like the Arminian-Calvinist divide and less like the Gnostic mainstream divide. The most Bible-oriented Protestants, I mean Trinitarian ones, practically ignore traditional Trinity speculations in their worship and practice. We just go a step further, going back to the sources and finding that they make better sense without those extra later layers of tradition. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that guy was pretty good. I didn't really feel the need to jump in there. He made a lot of good points. <laughs> So next week, I'll present and comment on the interactions between the panel members. And I'll also have a lot more to say about Dr. Craig's view that it's an anachronism to suppose that anyone in New Testament times understood the concept of numerical sameness, or maybe that they had a good grasp of the concept of numerical sameness. Hmm, the difference between those two claims is going to matter a lot, I think. This week's thinking music has been the track Into the J by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>